We are I. Jason, I've been hunt, trying to hunt you down for months to be able to get on the podcast here. And as a usual fashion, when I'm recording these, we always get into some great conversation before. So had to cut you off. And uh, so we can start talking about what COVID is like over there, because we've talked about how gyms have never really been closed. And you guys have lived relatively normal lives in the past. But um, like you just said, you've been hit by a, a COVID car crash there. So maybe just kind of like uh, recap what you just said, and then we'll get into the thick of things from there. Okay. Um, what, what I was talking about was how, um, so my daughter goes to, she's seven and she goes to an international school here. And so it's a small school, maybe 200 kids. And the headmistress got sick last Friday and it just went down the pyramid. Then some admin staff on Saturday and then a couple of the teachers on Sunday. And of course, uh, Norway's kind of an interesting country. It's very, um, very integrated, very electronic in that. And so as fast as all this happens, I get a text message from the municipality because oh. we have like a infection control team. And, um, and so as this went on, they very quickly figured out that um, enough teachers had been tested positive that everybody in the school was under suspicion. Mm-hmm. And so now they... Um, they said, okay, the school's closed, everybody's in quarantine, and you have to go get tested. And even after you get tested, if it's negative, you're still in quarantine for until Monday. So effectively four or five days afterwards. And, uh, and so it's been up until now, I've been really lucky, you know, like this this has obviously changed my life, but not in some of the terrible ways that I see other people who, you know, lose their jobs and are floundering financially or just, you know, totally cut off from a life that they've had. Um, I've always had, I used to travel probably a week a month for work internationally. And of course I haven't left my property in 10 months now, (laughs) but the, um, up until now, this is like the first time that it's like touched me directly. Mm-hmm. And so now we're, you know, trying to organize how to take care of things. And of course the kids are home again. And so you've got to, you know, I, I do have a job yeah. <laughs> and, and it is full time. So you have to do that. And then you have to do your normal life stuff as normal as can be. And then you got to homeschool your children and, you know, I'm helping her through grade two math and thinking to myself, wow, like those three university degrees, did I really get my money's worth? (laughs) (laughs) This stuff is tough. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I find that to be the funny part too, about, you know, doing all this homework with, uh, even like with my girls and stuff, it's, uh, it's interesting because it kind of, makes you think that what they're doing in school now, like I don't ever remember doing anything remotely close to that or my memory's just that bad. I can't remember the things that we did back then, but yeah, no, I, I completely understand what you mean. Yeah. So it's been, it's been interesting. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of concern right now because some of the testing results, it's not 100% clear, but they're worried that, that we might have one of those, you know, mutated strains here. And so people from some doctors from Oslo have actually come to Arendal, which, you know, we're four hours apart or something, and to, to help get a handle on it. And it's not surprising, you know, like this is a flu strain. The normal flu strain does it. I realize the difference between the two, but in the grand scheme of things, it would be surprising if it didn't have mutations over time. This is a natural biological thing. And so we're, um, it'd be interesting to see how the next couple months go until spring comes and, you know, usually things kind of calm down a little bit. Yeah, see, and the one thing that I find to be peculiar in Canada, uh, here, like, obviously, you know, from when you used to live in Canada, what is, it's like here we tend to latch on things pretty hard and want to pump it out there. But um, right at the beginning of COVID, there's always been different strains. And I feel like a lot of people forget that. I know they say that these ones are, um, like, they're a little bit more contagious or, you know, like, they spread a little bit faster. Um, but the the notion of that there's only been one singular COVID-19, it's never been like that from the beginning. Even on the West Coast of the United States had a different variant than what was on the East Coast of the United States. There was an, a version from India. There was a, another version from, you know, the UK. And then we had what we had over here. So there's always been mutations of it from the beginning. So like you said, it's just, it's par for the course. But I think we're kind of forgetting how it started or, and, you know, like a lot of the variations that were here at the beginning as well. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, and it's been interesting because it, it's forced people to rethink so much, mm -hmm. you know, the, despite the fact that I am a biologist and, and that end of it is quite interesting to me, this as a more at the personal and societal level has been really interesting to watch, you know, how, how governments have, have organized things in the different countries, how people have responded to it, and then all the way down to inside your household and inside yourself, like, how do I think about my new life? How do I think about, you know, my relationships with people and the fact that, um, you know, this has, I would have gone home to my parents' house mm -hmm. and, you know, taken the kids and grandma and grandpa time and all yeah. these good things and that's gone and the children don't know it they're too small mm -hmm. but I know it and I know how important it will be to them in 10 years yeah so like that loss they won't understand for a long time but it's a definite one mm -hmm. and and watching that you know just the I go down the aisle in the grocery store and the people kind of jog up, at, you know, like they're up against the shelving. And it's usually not bad like that here. But anytime that, you know, there's an announcement that there's, you know, any cases in this town for a couple of days, people are really tense. Mm -hmm. And we're social animals, all primates are. Yeah. And we really want to be together. That, that cozy time that, you know, really simple hugging, hand-holding, chatting with each other, feeling that space, that's important for, for our psyches. 
And so the longer that this goes on and the longer that we're told that everybody has to be, you know, at least one arm length, if not two, all the, all the normal people aren't going to be so normal anymore. And this is, this is the stuff that I think about. And, you know, so I actually um, completely agree with you because I know for me, um, I actually didn't realize how much just being around people meant to me because I'm, I'm always around so many people, like up until all this stuff started, you know, just being in the fitness industry, being social, you know, is being very, playing sports my entire life. But um, I've really, I've really noticed it now. And I remember listening to a study about five years ago, six years ago, when um, they were talking about urbanization and they're having like this new generation of kids that have only ever grown up in a city and how they perceived, you know, like um, agricultural lands, you know, like forestry. And so it was the new generation creating policy. So mm -hmm. like, that's the part to me that, you know, like where my wheels started turning, like what you were just talking about is like, when this generation grows up, there's no there won't be a lot of influence to counter it because you have an entire population of children that have all gone through the same thing. So there's nobody to kind of check that mindset because everybody's going to think that way, you know, yeah. where like now where, you know, you might have, you know, some of the kids, you know, creating policy have grown up in an urban center. Some of the kids might've grown up in a rural setting or some of them in a hybrid of both. So you have like these differing opinions, but when you have, you know, an entire generation of children that have grown up, in a social dilemma like what you're explaining, you know, they're all going to start creating policy later on in life based on that mindset and, and that understanding of life. And that to me is kind of the, the, the going to be the interesting part to see how all this plays out in the long term. Yeah, it's, um, it was interesting. So the um, one, uh, I have, I don't have many friends here in Norway, they, but one of them's a farmer and I was visiting him this summer and Norwegians are, they're really, they're wonderful people. And in a lot of ways, it's not so different here from Canada, but one of the big differences, uh, Canadians are much more, um, cozy, you know, we're much more prone to pass up a handshake and go for a hug kind of thing. Oh. And Norwegians like their physical distance. They're, they're friendly, you know, they, they love their friends, they love their families, but to see that physical affection is quite rare. And so I was at his farm and he's got a business and that, so there's random people around and uh, I hadn't seen him in a couple of weeks. And so I walked in and kind of looked at each other and had that typical awkward, like, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> do I put my hand forward? What, what am I doing here? And, and so he just stops and he puts his hands up and he's like, uh, I don't know what to do. And I was like, hug works. Yeah. And he, his face totally lit up, but then he stopped and like, he looked around to make sure nobody would see two of us. And it wasn't because it was, you know, two middle-aged dudes hugging behind the barn kind of thing. It was <laughs> yeah. because he really was nervous that somebody would see two people of any you know, anything touching each other just because of that panic, that fear. And that was, I don't know, it was just a kind of a weird moment. It was great to, you know, to have a hug because those are in short supply these days. Yeah. But at the same time, the fact that you would be nervous that somebody would see you and then talk about it and say, I don't know, like, 
they should have been two meters apart. That's not right. That's dangerous. And they're risking like my safety by doing that. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was a bit of a mind bender. See, and you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a male, female, I'm, I'm just a, a hugger too. I, you know, like I said, I think it's a, a Canadian thing and, you know, like affection. And um, the one thing that I've realized is, is very much like what you're saying, it's the sense of shame you know, and like shame has some really deep roots in, you know, human beings emotionally, you know, and like the detriment to that, like when you feel shame, wanting to have affection, like something that is a primal need, like you explained, you know, like this is something I'm drawn to do. Now I feel guilty of something that's, I'm just, I, I, there's a part of me that is just going to want to hug you. And I have to actively force myself to stop, to stopping doing that. It's just, it's a really, interesting flux that we're in right now um like what do you what do you see with people like coming out because I, I know from talking to some eastern europeans they were saying that um the break in affection typically like in europe is just because of these diseases that have been around before because i talked to some people in their 70s and 80s who've been kind of around situations like this or you know like just like different narratives of or have heard stories and they said well yeah like that we've always been like that you guys are the generation of like have to sit beside each other, hug each other, being in close quarters. We've known not to do that because this is how it happens. Cause we're always the one who told you guys to, you know, change your clothes, wash your hands, do, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, so like I see like, what, where do you think we end up out of all this? Do we resort back to our normal huggy ways or does that shame kind of set in its roots? No, it's going to be interesting because you know, we've had such a long period um, of just increased health and uh, the laziness that we can get away with stuff. And so when I lived in Victoria, I, uh, I owned a part of a cow. I was in a cow share. And by doing that, it was legal for me to have raw milk. And which I loved. I loved drinking. I made yogurt out of it. And I really thought that there was a lot of health benefits to it. But, you know, the laws around why I had to own part of the cow in order to do that legally existed because of way back in time. So in a hundred years ago, if the milkmaid had bubonic plague or something, you had to pasteurize the milk or everybody got sick. Mm-hmm. Well, once, you know, we started washing our hands, we, you know, started using flush toilets, we started doing a lot of really simple hygiene things, our health magically just got better. We lived longer, we got less sick, we had less of these infectious diseases going around, all of that. And, um, and then simultaneous with it are just our healthcare in general. And so that's why we've seen these huge jumps in, in uh, you know, life expectancy and de- decreases in all of these kinds of diseases. And so I'm wondering like how that is going to play out. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely assuming in the next year or so that things simmer down to the point where we have an opportunity to you know, have a semblance of normalcy. There's a lot of people that have like a giant deficit of affection and there's gonna be, there's gonna be hug parties. Yeah. <laughs> But there's also going to be a lot of people that this has struck personally who 
I don't think they're going to ever be able to forget it. Mm-hmm. And especially some of the people in the, um, in the healthcare industry, you know, like I have a few people that, you know, that I write with on a semi-regular basis on Instagram and some of them are nurses and that, and they're like, I don't think I can ever forget what I've seen, mm-hmm. you know? In, that, in what regard, like, what are they referencing to, like, things that they've seen, just, like, the chaos or, like, the, um, because this isn't something where people are walking in and, like, a war zone, like, blown off arm, half a face missing, like, what have they? Uh, no, it's, uh, so there's definitely a feeling of overwhelm, just the fact that, you know, there's more people who are sick coming at them than they're prepared to or have the facilities to deal with. But one of, the, one of the twists in all this that I think is really troubling is that people get sick, grow old, get injured, and die regularly. That, that is our normal life, unfortunately. And if you are a healthcare professional, if you're a doctor or nurse, then that's kind of part of your job. But there's a process to it, you know. You have your friends come and visit you in the hospital and tell you, it's okay, you know, like you'll heal, you'll get better. Your family comes. If you get really sick, you know, like your family really comes. And so there is that connection and people have a chance to say goodbye or to, you know, forgive or to do all sorts of things and really kind of tidy up your life and, or their life or both. And now you've got people who come in, are sick, but they're okay. The next day, they're really sick. And then then they go downhill and end up dying, but they die alone. Their family can't come and say goodbye. There's no closure. There's no, there's no healing. There's none of that. And all of that emotional, you know, emotional shit really <laughs> gets dumped on these people people who are you know it's that's not part of their job and and um that's the kind of these are the things that i'm hearing from them of just you know like my heart is broken Mm -hmm. and and it's not about the medical stuff it's about the the human aspect and and the fact that it's like there's been a cut there and so it's um it's interesting you think of like how many people have been in or nurses and doctors that have been in that position or just hospital staff where they've probably heard, you know, please don't leave me or like, I don't yeah. want to be alone. You well, know, yeah. I mean, like if you've ever heard a human being say that when they're about to pass away or like, you know, they're really sick or things are getting questionable. Um, like that's a huge emotional draw. And like you said, like they're, you're not prepared for that. You know, you're not educated for it. There's not the resources or the tools on the flip side of that. And, you know, it's not, a singular time, you know, like when they're really overwhelmed in the healthcare system, they might be hearing that on a daily or weekly basis, you know, by these people and they feel like at a deficit themselves. So when somebody reaches out emotionally, even though it's like a, a last chance emotional uh, re- or interaction, because this nurse or this doctor might be in an emotional deficit too from not being around their social network and their family, then you would presume that you'd get sucked into that even more. So it'd be even more emotionally taxing on the backside. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, and of course, no matter how you feel about it, you only have so much time as well. 
And so if you've got, you know, if it's only one person, then you can devote that extra time, both chronologically and emotionally. But when that's one of 10 people who's saying, you know, I'm dying, just, just stay, just listen, just hold my hand, whatever, mm-hmm. you can't. And, and then you've got the guilt of saying, I'm sorry, I you know, like I have to go. Yeah. So um, the, there's definitely um, uh, different, the impacts are different for different people. And there's going to be a whole suite of people who are going to be perfectly healthy through all of this, yeah. who are still going to come away with, you know, scars of their own. And so the, um, it's, it's, you know, this was just a matter of time that something like this was going to happen. It's not a surprise, mm-hmm. but the um, being the first time in modern society, you know, like the, the Spanish flu, <laughs> you know, was, was really kind of the big round one, but our records of that and just the way the world was structured was so different that there definitely was a few years afterwards where people were pretty anxious, but we, uh, you know, as a world, we got over it and <laughs> got up to all sorts of troubles shortly thereafter. So uh, it'll be Even thanks you from like a government perspective or like a position of power, you know, when the Spanish flu was around, like, I don't know, it's hard to tell, but it just, it doesn't seem like there was like a big thrust for overarching control and then policy thereafter. And like, those are the things to me that are going to also play out that are, um, I hope that we can resort back to an easing of control of power, you know, like um, in a shift back to regular everyday life, you know, just with like the structures that we have in place politically, because you can kind of see how like the wheels can come really off the bus of how our lives are going to be uh, politically after this with the policies that are going to be made. Yeah. And the history has shown that those kinds of things aren't given up easily. Once you have the ability to exert control, then why would you ever give it up? (laughs) And, um, and that part's unfortunate because I think, you know, we had, um, there definitely was flaws in many of them, but we had a good, well-working society, you know, in Canada, in Norway, in, in the world. They, um, and we did have, for all the, the issues and flaws that we had, we had people who were working all day, every day, like who were dedicated to trying to fix the different things going on. And so um, it, uh, it wasn't perfect, but it was a world I was pretty happy to live in. Mm-hmm. And, um, and now I have to guess what new one I get to live in and, uh, and adapt to that. And I think that's one of the other kind of um, stressors is that, you know, I'm 50. So I've kind of, a leopard can change its spots, but in a lot of ways, you know, yeah. I've, I've figured out how life works and how I'm going to go about it. And it never really occurred to me in the same way that, you know, I thought change would always come. You know, I looked at my grandparents, especially my wife's grandfather who lived to be 95. And so, you know, he went from 
what pre-car <laughs> yeah. to cars to telephones to TVs to to the internet yeah and like so much change but he had 95 years to do it we're gonna have you know the blink of an eye and then all of a sudden be told okay well all that stuff the way you did things that world that's done now we got a new one and you know hurry up and get with the program and it takes a lot of a lot of thought and a lot of energy to to make those shifts mm -hmm. and then a lot of like resistance right because like you're saying like old dog new tricks syndrome so it's you know, especially like we said, like there's just, there's been this complete 90 degree England and you see where there's been, you know, like all the, you know, like anti-mask protests or, you know, like people like pushing back. There's, you know, people in Vancouver that have turned their condos into nightclubs, you know, with the, with the pushback, like just all those kind of things, right. Where, you know, what, what happens if this is the new norm going forward or any kind of these, these structures or restrictions are maintained. So we're, preventing the next one you know whether that's a decade or five decades from now um you know but like where what happens with the civil unrest of the people who just want to go back to what things were like before because they might not even have been happy with the way things were before and wanted change of you know like less restrictions or less government control or less oversight you know but now there's just this massive big brother approach because to me like the concerning part is the um you know, like the, all the government tracking apps and then the semi-forced vaccination programs where it's, well, you don't have to get vaccinated, but you can't travel unless you do. You don't have to get vaccinated, but you can't go to school unless you do. Like, you know, all the, those to me are like the real great areas because I really truly want to just believe if adults are left to be able to make adult decisions, they will, you know, and I look at like my life where I don't really need to be told not to necessarily be around a whole bunch of people because I just, I'm not. But when you're just like, you can't be, it's like, well, why? Like I'm an adult. Like if you just tell me like, Hey, you should probably limit your interactions. I'm going to. And I think most people will where a lot of the pushback is getting inside a gray area of that you can't do this. Cause I'm telling you, you can't. And then the pushback from there, like you want to do something you would never normally be doing anyway. Yeah. It's, the and that's the challenge is that um you know the bulk of the population is going to naturally do the right thing and but with this feeling that the the bulk of the population isn't enough it has to be everybody so this is why we've got all these laws is to kind of capture that last few percent mm -hmm. and the problem is is that in the process of doing that that last few percent percent they don't want to be captured yeah. <laughs> so they're going to fight but then there's a, a separate chunk of people who would have happily done it if you just said you know this is the right thing to do do you mind coming along with the program mm -hmm. but when you tell them listen it's a law now then all of a sudden yeah it just feels like i don't know you know like my mom telling me that i've got to do something and me thinking i'm a grown-up i'll make my own choices yeah. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> they got to eat those peas, but you're stashing them in your pocket at the same time. Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll see. It'll be interesting to uh, come back in a year and talk to you again because the it will be a very different conversation. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to get into the the ice baths because I know at the beginning, I remember when I first seen um, your Instagram post at the beginning of all this, wasn't the original plan when we were back at the whole theoretical, this is going to last like two weeks or four weeks because we're trying to flatten the curve. <laughs> but you're like, I'm going to do this every day. I'm going to have go find a new like creek or waterfall, something cold water to hop in every day while this is going on. Um, like, have you maintained this? I, I, I watch your posts all the time. And, you know, like, obviously, you've done a great job of maintaining that. But um, maybe just kind of walk everybody through for who doesn't know what you committed yourself to and what's going on in your life with, uh, with ice baths and hopping in the cold. Okay. Um, well, the first thing is, I have to admit that I was fatally naive. So yeah. Uh, last March, uh, about the 13th or 14th, um, in Norway, the government had a meeting and they announced two o'clock in the afternoon, everybody in the country was looking at the TV and they said, okay, you know, the, this virus is out of control. We're in, we've got some new laws and we're enacting the strictest rules that have ever happened since the war, if ever. And, um, and so the schools were closed, uh, some shops were closed, there was all sorts of stuff. And this was back in the days where, um, you know, just the idea that you got told, okay, you can't come closer than a meter to another person was like, you know, I don't even know how to do this. And, um, and because I had, so my daughter's in grade school, my son's in daycare, Barnahaga in Norwegian, they, um, they were going to be home. We're going to be taking care of them. And I just remember thinking, you know, like this is going to be a big deal in their lives. This is going to be one of those things where when they're in their twenties, people say, so, you know, when the coronavirus came, like, what did you do? How, what about your family? You know, people are going to, no matter how it plays out in the short term, it will be a point in their life forever. And I didn't want them just to remember it as this like oppressive fear kind of situation. I wanted them to have a little bit of normalcy in their day to day, but also to realize that, you know, when these really big events come, that you can decide to, to do something about it. And obviously, most times the doing is not changing it. It's changing how you respond to it. And so um, I had just, uh, you know, not so long before that, through whatever means, I had seen a variety of like posts and things like that on ice bows. And it seemed like kind of a cool thing. You know, when you first see it, it's got that drama. And it, at the time, another naive part, it, it almost felt like kind of a macho thing, you know, like get in that ice water kind of deal. And so anyways, the, the next day we got up and had our breakfast and I said to the kids, okay, get your coat. We're going down to the wharf because I live on the ocean and uh, daddy's going to get in the ocean. And this is the 15th of March and the ocean is four or five degrees Celsius. And, uh, and they're laughing hysterically. And I'm thinking, I can do this for two or three weeks. You know, they, uh, I've had a rough and tumble life. I'll, I'll survive this. Yeah. <laughs> and uh so anyways, we went down and I said, and every day we're going to come down here together and you guys can cheer me on and daddy will do it for you. 
So they stood on the wharf and kicked snow in my face and clapped and yelled and (laughs) were kids. And the first day that I got in, my body exploded. I had like this shooting ice cream headache, uh, huffing and puffing for like a minute. It was work. It really was work. But it was the kind of work that I couldn't say no to. You know, one, I had an obligation to them. And especially as a parent, that's a a bit of trust that you really can't break. Mm -hmm. But also it it felt kind of important to me to, you know, prove that I could do it to myself. So I went back and I went back and I went back. And I realized now, so I'm, I'd have to count. I'm somewhere around 325 days in a row. So I've never missed a day. Wow. And... You know, there's, everybody has their own style. Are you a wild swimmer, an ice swimmer, a dipper, whatever? And for me, the, you know, the rules would be, I've committed myself to never less than three minutes. Mm -hmm. And my heart, (laughs) the hottest part of my body has to be under the water. And then after that, I'll, I'll swim, I'll dip in ice water, creeks, lakes, ditches, under road bridges. I have no pride and I enjoy every last one of them. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, the kids still come off and on, you know, it's less kind of amazing, but even yesterday, my daughter came with me and we spent probably half an hour going along this creek, checking out spots and breaking ice and chatting. And, you know, like it was a special kind of bonding moment. Absolutely. Bonding, bonding half hour. And then we found the right spot. And she was like, oh, yes, dad, this is a good one. <laughs> and, um, you know, I got in and the water, so it was fresh water and it was moving quite quickly. I don't have or use a thermometer anymore. And I really should buy one again. I keep breaking them. But the water was cold enough that the ice covering it and along the shore was actually building, not decreasing, even though the water was moving. So it had to be zero degree water. Yeah. And, um, you know, I got in and even after all that experience in those days, that first 20 seconds or so, you know, my body was just like, Hey, we're dying and you you need to get out. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I'm thinking, no, no, we're, we're not dying and I don't need to get out. You just need to get with the program here. Calm down. You'll be fine. And I should clip that little piece of video out and post it on Instagram because it, it's only about 20 seconds or so. But you can see when I crouch down in the water, you can see my face, the stress. Yeah. And then kind of, you know, close the eyes, calm, a few breaths, but no, no panic, no deep breathing, no hyperventilating, and then just that relax. Mm-hmm. And I open my eyes and look around and realize that my sweet girl is grabbing handfuls of snow and throwing them in the air so that oh. the snow lands on me because it will look colder in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, That's priceless. That's the, the life of a, an ice bather. And so it, my reasons have changed. I still do it for my kids because they, are, they have some joy in it. It's a fun bonding thing, but there's a certain amount of inspiration in that they are cluing into the fact that 
you know, you really can make yourself do hard things. Mm-hmm. And that's a character trait that we're not the strongest on these days as people. Yeah. But it somewhere in the summer, I realized that I really, mostly I'm doing it for me. The physically, I feel better. Most of it is like on emotional, mental kind of thing. And so even today to, to talk to you, the earlier I was like, okay, you know, get ready and do this and that, and, you know, don't lose track of time. <laughs> and I could feel like some stress building inside me and um, which was a little bit odd. But part of my work, I do a lot of like public speaking where I've got 50 or hundred people looking at me mm-hmm. and, um, and so I was like, you know, why are you stressed out? And I thought, oh, well, I'll just nip down to the wharf and pop into the ocean for a few minutes. And in three minutes, I'll have a complete emotional, mental reset and, and start again. But then I thought, well, if I'm completely stressed out while I'm talking to you, then I'll just end up doing it again in the evening. So I'm, I'm waiting until later today. But it's amazing. It's almost... You know, when I talk to other people about it, it's almost like medicine. Mm-hmm. And, and so I've asked other people, like, do you use it uh, preventively to, you know, to set yourself up for your day to say, okay, well, you know, I'm going into a situation I know is going to be really tough. So maybe I'll, I'll go and have, you know, an ice bath and just kind of you know, reset my baseline and bring the strongest, calmest, you know, best me? Or is it the kind of thing where something will happen in your day and you realize, wow, that just completely threw me for a loop. And then you think, oh, okay, well, you know, when I get home, I'll, you know, tootle on down to the wharf, climb in the ocean, and then heal that. And so it's, um, and, and I use it both ways, <laughs> But it's been interesting to watch the, the, the different, that, that kind of mental, emotional thing paired with just how my body feels in general. What is some of the feedback that you get from other people when you're talking about why they do it? Like, like what, what's their connection with the reason why they keep on doing it? Like, I know most people start because it's like, you know, they, they see all these posts on Instagram, like what you were talking about. And it kind of seems like, you know, like the new thing to try, you know, but what's some of the feedback of why people maintain it or what, what keeps bringing them back? There's, so there's a whole new wave and I guess I'm part of it in like of the people who started in the last year. Mm -hmm. And, um, and part of that is, uh, you know, it's fun. It's kind of cool, you know, and, uh, um, and in most places, myself accepted, um, Uh, there's a very strong community element, you know, like you have your club and you meet and you go together. And so, um, and being in a club, uh, if for lack of a better term, we'll think of ice bathing as a sport. If you're part of a sports team or a club or whatever, you always, that feels good. Like humans like working together, that kind of cooperative shared experience thing. But because ice baths are so physically intense, then that sense of community gets amplified as well. And so 
I think that that's like the most recent wave of people are really kind of caught up in that. And especially because we're not getting that sense of community in so many other ways in our life. And so it's, it's a fabulous feeling. If you look at the people that I've met who have been doing this for years, um, a lot of them are, you know, they, um, in some ways they've been, you know, wounded one way or another. And, and this is a real healing thing for them. And so, and then they get to the point where they just can't imagine their lives any differently. And it's interesting to, to look at kind of the demographics of, of the community and, and uh, how many people are, you know, have a real strong like artistic side to them, which is something that I know nothing about, but they, um, but that's a big chunk of the community. And just a lot of them, you know, they all have had their, their challenges, their, their whatever, their damage in life. And uh, they've found solace and comfort and clarity and healing in these regularized spas. And then gotten to the point where they just, they realize that their life is better because of it. And the thought of, you know, oh, I'm okay now. I don't need to do this anymore. It's not like, you know, antibiotics where you're done in two weeks. You can always, like always, uh, life is throwing these challenges at you. And how you're going to respond to them and how you're going to deal with that is a big part of who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, the one thing I've really noticed about um, like ice baths and just with, because I have so many different, you know, people from like, jacked bodybuilders to like you know like um the average you know stay-at-home mom to you know uh, eight-year-old kids you know like there's just there's such a, a huge pool just of like references of talking to people saying like like what are you um getting from this like what's your mindset past this and the one thing that I realized because it's funny that you you kind of touched on this a little bit at the beginning here was that it's like the average person's triple double or four, four, 40, you know, like it's, it's a way for people to, the average person take something that is extremely difficult perception wise, and to be able to really conquer that. And like you said, there's not a lot of um, avenues that most people today really feel like they're conquering something extremely difficult because like what else in life has that kind of difficulty that is that short duration and you can, you can beat it. You can win it. You can really come away with sharpening that sword immediately. Because even if you get in for 20 seconds, 40 seconds, like most people, if it's that short a duration, they're really struggling mentally and emotionally with that, but they always come back out and you know, like that draw being back. Okay. Well, I'm going to try 45 seconds this time. Okay. My, my goal is a minute. Like, like don't let me not get out after a minute, like it allows everybody some great resources to like sharpen those tools just because we don't anymore. Like I said, like a lot of people run from adversity so much. And I always say it to people, it's like, you know, you get in, you know, like you're in your 70 degree home, then you get in your seven degree car and you get in your 70 degree office. And, you know, most of the time people aren't even going outside, but they think they're outside because they've got in their car, you know, but they've spent like, there's, life is so sanitized, but this is one of those areas of life where you can just kind of hop right in and like 
everything tells you that you should be in warm, but like nothing really tells you that you should be in cold. So even like the concept of like walking there, like I know for me for about six or eight months, like every time that I would think about, okay, I'm done my workout. I'm going to hop in the tank. Like my stomach would get all queasy and nervous. I'd be in the bathroom and like, it was just no matter how successful I knew I was going to be, that was just the physiology behind it. Like my body is just revolting against it. Even though like cognitively, I'm like, I can't wait for it. I love this. I love the feeling. My body was always protesting. The nerves were high and the stomach was reacting to it. And like, I just, I love now that I'm so passive getting, you know, into it that I've really conquered that, but, and I've used those tools and those resources, you know, in every other area of my life too, because I use it like what you were saying is it's for all measures, like the, the staying with something that's consistently hard, you know, like, like sticking with like the, um, the various different ways of being able to do it. Cause I've noticed a clear difference of being in the tank versus outside in nature. Like when mm. you're in the tank, it's a lot more of like, I'm going to bench press 300 pounds. You know, but when you're out in nature, it's more cleansing, more purifying. Like I noticed the difference of being in a lake where the water is still versus being in a stream or river where the water is moving. Like I know if I need to be very emotionally clear, I'll go to like a river or a stream because there's something about that flowing water that just really takes it out of me. You know, and like I said, if I'm just going straight for the battle, I'm in the tank where it's minus two, minus three, and there's chunks of ice and crushed ice and, you know, just the whole, the whole bit. So I use it for so many different, uh, so many different reasons. And I'm glad that you've picked up on that and noticed that with other people too. Um, a question I have, sorry to cut you off. Um, do you notice anything um, in your body where you know that there's inflammation that's pocketed where there's a different feeling there um, in reference for myself. Like if I have, uh, if I just did squats and like one of my knees is like a little bit inflamed, I don't feel it, but I will get out of the tank and like that joint will be numb and just purple. And, you know, like, like I can see from a physiology, there's something different there. Like, um, like playing squash, you know, like I'd always like the, the joints in my hands, you know, from playing squash would always be taxed and that hand, I could feel it in the, in the joints and stuff like that a lot more. Um, do you ever notice anything like that? Or has anybody ever said anything? I hadn't thought of it that way. And, but what I have noticed is, you know, just natural kind of aging. The, my knees are fine. I've never damaged them, but they, I would feel it, especially if I'd crouch, if I'd be doing some work and I'd crouch down when I stood up, you know, for years, through most of my 40s, the first couple steps would be kind of awkward and clumsy until I got going again. That kind of thing seems to have disappeared. Mm. The, um, but the rest of my life, I, um, I haven't been pushing my body <laughs> near in the way that you do physically uh, to, to have that, that kind of damage, you know, I'll, I'll definitely have big weekends, you know, I'll be up at my cabin working in the summer and fixing stuff or around here with the fishing boats and that, and, you know, be sore the next day kind of thing. And of course, um, that a few extra minutes where I'll, I'll go and have my dip and think, okay, well, you know, that's enough. But then I think, well, we had a big day yesterday. Let's just, you know, hang out for a couple more minutes. And, um, 
and it does really help. And, and I've, you know, I've read all the, the science-y kind of journal articles and that talking about, um, what's the acronym, DOMS, the delayed, yeah, delayed onset muscle soreness. Yeah. Yeah. And how, you know, it helps with that. But of course, if you're a bodybuilder, you really want that kind of muscle pain because that's a big part of your growth. And I think I'm a little bit too old to think of, you know, giant muscles at this point in my <laughs> life. But the, uh, the, it, there has been some, some real kind of physical benefits. And the other thing that I noticed was I haven't changed the, the activeness of my life. I'm, I've always been a fairly fit person, but I've never been like a serious gym kind of guy or any of that. I've just had, my life is active enough to keep me fit and healthy. But in the last 10 months, the fact that I spend 45 minutes a day shivering, um, I've lost uh, a little bit over 10 pounds mm-hmm. and, and it's, been 10 pounds of fat, which once the ice came this winter and the water went below five degrees Celsius up front, I really wanted that fat back. Like it has been so cold this winter and no amount of butter and potatoes is putting any weight on me. So (laughs) it's um, it's really interesting that you said, because you know, like, um, you know, just like through like, you know, researching the science, I mean, uh, jo- Dr. Josephine Warsick on the podcast, um, and, you know, she was, yeah, explaining like the, some of the physiology where it's the, you know, converting the, um, white fat cells into bra- brown fat cells. Cause they have the mitochondria as a little power plant, you know, expelling more energy, more heat, but then also subsequently burning themselves off more because now like the, the furnace is, is cranked way up when I was doing my, my DEXA, well, I, I get a DEXA scan done about every two or three months and my visceral fat levels were really high. Um, and that's what we thought what was maybe happening from being in the cold bath. Well, like you might have like this subcutaneous fats really low. So you look lean, you know, but mm-hmm. am I creating more visceral fat because I'm dipping my organs in the, in the cold, yeah. so I've created this protective layer, which you would never normally see unless if you were doing a DEXA scan, um, you know, because like you just look in the mirror and you're like, Oh, I look jacked. Um, <laughs> You know, but like it, it actually turned out not to be true or temporary, temporarily true. You know, like when you first start going in the ice bath, maybe you do um, increase your visceral fat levels. But I know for me, just by keeping track of it, uh, they came right back down. So uh, we've been wondering if like that's a little bit of a normal process. But I, I know for me, like the more regularly that I do it, like it, it does feel like the cold sticks with you like a lot longer uh, just because like you are, uh, you know, burning a lot more um, those fat cells off. You just don't have the insulation to be able to keep you warm for sure. Yeah, it was interesting because I had also physically felt the cold differently in my body, especially in like my torso and legs, than I had felt it in my back Mm -hmm. and specifically the upper part of my back. And so when I learned that all your brown fat is, you know, when I look at my back, I'm not really sure where the fat is, but but that's where it is. And after when I get out... um, after a swim or a dip or whatever the you know depending upon how long and water temperature um and there's all these variables of like how am i going to warm up how long is it going to take to warm up and am i going to 
what, if anything, am I going to do to kind of help the process? And I have a whole host of like, you know, back alley techniques to do this. But if I just come in the house and say, no, I'm just going to dry off, put my work clothes on and sit down at the laptop and shake like a madman while I go back to work, I will feel that cold right in the middle of my back longer and more intense than I will in say my legs or my feet or anything like that. It's really interesting. That is interesting. The one thing that I've noticed too, like when I go just for complete self-regulation, um, I can't put any clothes on immediately right after. Like it feels like it, the, the cold can't radiate out. It's like mm-hmm. I hold it in. So I, I put on a hoodie and it actually compounds the problem, make it worse. So like, I'll just leave my swimming trunks on or like my boxers and I'll, I'll hop in the car and just drive away because like I, it, it actually makes that feeling. Well, I say worse liberally because, it, you know, obviously that's what the effect you're going for, but it just feels like it just traps that cold in and amplifies the coolness of my body. But then if I, if I ice bath in the morning that I know by about 10 to 12 hours later, I'm exhausted. Like it just, I can't even keep my eyes open. I I can fall asleep while walking, standing up. Like just, it takes so much energy to re-regulate my body. Um, That's why like, I love going in the tank before bed, you know, maybe about, you know, six or eight hours before I go to bed. Cause I find just the, the sleeps are incredible. Like I'm completely dead to the world. Yeah. And um, for me, I just, because I, my goal is to do it every day, no matter what, I just kind of slot it in whenever there's a, you know, a gap naturally occurring in my day. I don't really book these things. Yeah. And so I've gotten up and been making my coffee in the morning. So I'm, you know, awake 20 minutes at that point and looked out the window and thought, that's a really beautiful sunrise. Mm-hmm. that'd be really nice and just you know turn off the coffee machine walk down to the wharf climb in the ocean and you know and then I don't need coffee at that point I am raring to go yeah. and yeah. I've also been just like busy in life chaos all day and then looked at the the clock at eleven thirty at night and thought okay well you know like it's literally now or never and stampeded out the door had a dip and then said okay well as soon as I'm warm enough to get in bed, <laughs> I will, <laughs> I will get under the covers and try to go to sleep. Yeah. And, um, and so you're right in that depending upon the time of day, there is, there's that short bit of real euphoria when you get out. And then there's, you know, the, the shiver stage. Then there's the, I just feel, I just feel awesome. I'm not cold anymore. I'm not hot, but you know, I've had a reset. I've got a positive outlook on everything in life and I'm feeling resilient, I think would be the best word. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, there's sometimes where if I do it in the morning, you know, my nature is to be a bit of a night owl, but at the same time, evening will come and I'll think, whew, feel a little whipped today. I'm not sure why, but it's because of, you know, my body's been working hard all day. Absolutely. You know, it's a, in the, so I tracked for about eight months, about three years ago, um, whether or not that you could fake doing cardio by sitting in a sauna. So I track like my heart rate and I can get my, my heart rate just naturally climbs. Like, you know, when I'm in, you know, about 65, 70 degrees, 
Um, I can get my heart rate up to a pretty sustainable about like 130, 135. So, you know, like I was looking at it for um, like working with clients of so people who just don't like to do cardio or are too uh, overweight, too obese to actually just go do so like it's hard for them to walk. It hurts the joints. Like what are ways that you can mimic that? Mm-hmm. Um, and which is interesting because then I did the same thing like a few years later with being in like dice bath where like you don't get the spike in the heart rate. So, you know, like to me, it's very similar to all these, um, you know, people who play chess who burn thousands and thousands of calories in these chess competitions where it's more cognitive calorie burning the the side that we just don't understand yet or and we don't know how to measure it we don't know how to calculate it but like that's the same thing like with ice baths like where you don't get the heart rate increase if anything we, you get the decrease in the heart rate but you're burning so many calories but we have no way to be able to calculate the actual like return of that um mm-hmm. which is something that i would love to be able to to figure out a way to be able to track it because i like i i feel based on my hunger and my tiredness that I have to be burning probably around the 800 to 1200 extra calories in a day when I'm, you know, in about that minus two, minus 2.5 water, you know, for seven minutes, like it's just, there's no way, like I, I literally could eat like the kitchen sink, the fridge, the washing <laughs> machine, my shirt, like I'm just, I'm starving all day. And then, yeah, about about 10, 12 hours later, like I could power nap for like at least an hour or two. That's how exhausted I am. But well, I just um, I was just looking. I'll have to go back and find it because I can't remember the the guy's name, but he was a research physiologist and they did some experiments where they were um, uh, chilling people almost to the point of hypothermia, mild and then watching their recovery in a variety of uh, circumstances. But one of the things he said was that they were regularly seeing uh, uh, calorie consumptions between 1,000 and 1,500 yep. uh, for that event. And it stuck with me. I did a, a quick you know, Google scholarship uh, search trying to find the paper because I wanted to get more clarity on it because I'm thinking, well, hold on. I'm, uh, I don't know, 190, 200 pounds. So just 90, 93 kilos. They, um, I'm supposed to have 2000 calories. Like that's my daily consumption. And you're telling me that half to two thirds of that is just my recovery. So, um, Outside of your basal metabolic rate too, because your basal metabolic rate is probably, you know, like 12 or 1300 calories too, if you're just laying in bed all day. So between those two figures, like you're probably pushing like 2,500 calories a day, potentially, and you haven't even done anything. Yeah. Which probably explains why I'm on a, you know, potato and butter binge and not getting anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've also done a, a lot of tracking of my heart rate too, just to kind of, or sorry, uh, my blood pressure uh, to kind of see like statistically where it's at. Because so obviously I, I measure mine every morning and my systolic and diastolic, uh, both those values are about uh, 10 or 15 points higher on days where I don't, even if I miss one day or intentionally miss a couple of days, I get a really big influx in my blood pressure. Like if I don't go in the tank for like two, three days, 
um, I, I have um, a massive spike in my blood pressure. Like it's something that really kind of keeps me more like in an optimal range. And I thought, you know, like there might've been some like different factors that play in that, but I've ran that experiment about six or seven times now. And it's almost like clockwork. That's really interesting. The, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, so every time I would go in the pharmacy in Canada, you know, you get a free blood pressure check because they've got the little, the little machine there, but we don't have anything like that here. And it would be kind of cool to, to do my blood pressure again and just kind of see. The, um, I was lucky, you know, mine's always just genetically been in the, quite the good range. But, you know, as I watch my, my family, my father's uh, obviously a little bit older and, you know, he had high blood pressure for years. He had a stroke and that and, and, and watching such a, an incredibly strong fit man then have those problems later in life. It really was just motivation that at some point, and in my particular case, it was perfectly aligned with my 40th birthday where I realized I just don't heal the way I used to, you know, like all the things when I was young, you know, you'd fall down the side of a mountain and smash off a rock and get up and be like, Oh, I tell you, I'll feel that tomorrow. And that was it. Yeah. And now, now I'll like turn my ankle walking in my own driveway and think, Oh my God, I gotta go lie down for the rest of the day. <laughs> and so that uh, maintenance, we'll call it, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be a massive effort. And I actually think that these ice baths are kind of a dual purpose in that I am getting that a little bit of a physical workout every day. And plus the, that kind of internal, emotional, mental piece that, that is so important, but they, um, you know, combining that so that as I continue to grow older, I'm a fit, happy person mm -hmm. is it's good for everybody. You know, it's selfishly good, but it's good for all the people that I have direct relationships with. It's good for my family. And it's good at that really high level of society in that I'm in a position not to be a burden on society. I'm in a position to be a contributor to society, even as I get older and older and older. And I think that that's one of the hidden benefits that nobody really thinks about in all this. You kind yeah. of get stuck on, you know, like, am I fit enough to be happy for me today? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and it, it's funny that you say, because like, I, I look at things like that too, where it's the, I don't want to be the, you know, having to sit on the couch, you know, when I'm 80, just watching TV all day because I can't move or do anything like that's That's one of the reasons why I do all of this stuff, you know, and I do find that, if you've got to the point of that, when you're regularly in, you know, like the ice tank or the water, or the bath or whatever it is to you, you're really fundamentally thinking more about your long-term healthcare and like what that really looks like to you. And you're going to start to pick out other things too, you know, like, well, I could eat a little bit better. Like I'm going to go for that run or, you know, like what's the, what does the sauna do? You know, like you're just kind of looking for a little bit more like other strategies that you can like add on top of that, because I, I've personally found when talking to people, they rarely ever just go in the cold, you know, like it, it typically ends up being that plus something else or plus a couple of these other things, because you just, you feel motivated to take your healthcare into your own hands because you realize there's really simple things you can do that make you feel really good. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's it's funny because there's a bit of a joke in the um, slightly evangelical way that people who who do I spouse and that on a regular basis, like they feel so great because of it that they want to share it. Mm-hmm. And so you know, like you don't have to ask them; they'll tell you. And um, and it was something, ironically, that um, so the I grew up in Canada, not so far from Thunder Bay in Ontario, and the Finnish population there is a significant portion of the community, and um, and so it was really normal for people to have saunas in their house, where you don't tend to see that in the rest of Canada, and. I'd always missed that when I got older and thought, oh, you know, one day I'll have one in my house or whatever. And it was actually kind of this summer, this fall, that I would see in your posts that, you know, you had your your ice tank, your torture chamber kind of <laughs> there, but you had the, um, the sauna as well. And I thought, I always really liked having saunas. They felt they felt good and they felt good in that combined mental physical way that the ice baths do just very different and so i actually just uh in december the right after christmas i bought one Mm -hmm. and so now i've got it's exactly what you said i've got that kind of dual modality of you know i do ice baths every day i don't have the same commitment to having a sauna but I feel the benefits of both of them. And I can look at the sauna and think, you know, like it, it will bring about some effects, some changes. And so, you know, like, do I need to relax a little bit or, you know, the, you know, and especially if uh, like, you know, I have kind of aches or pains or knots or whatever, it tends to be more of a a physical thing for me. Mm -hmm. And then there is that when it hits 60 degrees Celsius, I can feel my heart chirping away in there. And I'm thinking, I haven't sweated like this in years. And I'd always had, I was a field biologist most of my life. And I had a lot of kind of pride in the fact that I had worked, um, you know, the one winter I was out on Sable Island uh, doing research and the one day it was minus 52 Celsius. Oh. And I still went outside. And, uh, you know, not for very long, but yeah. there was a couple of essential things that needed to get done and yeah. I went and did them. And uh, for a few years I had contracts working in Belize. Uh, there it wasn't marine mammals. It was, um, uh, we we're working with bees, uh, orchid bees. And um, we got back to the research station the one day for lunch and it was like 42 degrees Celsius or something on the thermometer. The the woman I was working with dropped her pack, clothes, boots, hat, everything, just stepped into the shower, turned on the water and stood there like she was like she was at the end of her rope. And and I'd known her for years. She was a tough, strong woman. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I went and sat in the shade and had two beer for lunch and, yeah. <laughs> and uh, felt a little bit better after that. But they, um, those extremes, they were vitalizing mm-hmm. and they were kind of reaffirming in, in a very early way in my life. I wasn't nearly so kind of self-aware at that point. But now that I look back on it, 
it was a way of me realizing, yeah, these are like life can be difficult. These are hard things, but how exciting is it when you can do them? Yeah. Like, and, and that affirmation was a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and to me, like I always find like with these environments that if there's that little part of us that nags at you to go back like that nags it like, like this. Okay. It really makes me feel like this is just a part of the human experience, you know, being subjected to these extremes. It's like when I'm sitting in a, in a sauna that's 220 degrees Fahrenheit, like everything when I'm in it is telling me to get out. But when I get out, everything's telling me to go back in, you know, like when I'm like sitting in the tank, like it's, you know, there's more of me saying that, you know, like that you, you should get in, then should get out. Like there's, there's something about like my physiology. And, and I know that like talking to other people, like once you just admit it, once you break the programming of everyday society saying that it should just be this sanitized, you know, mono temperature, you know, that everybody just embarks on that it actually really speaks to you as a person. You know, like even it's like we did, we know at a genetic level that I should be in these environments because I'm getting some really great benefit out of, even if I don't recognize what the benefit is, your body knows what that benefit is. No, it's, um, it is amazing. And the, um, it's kind of funny because, you know, before we were talking about how, and you were saying, sometimes you look at the tank and you, you just, your body is like, no, like, I'm saying no, and I really want you to hear it. And then you have to overcome that. And it's almost like a, you overcome it before you get in. Then you have a second battle with yourself to, you know, stay in the water, stay in the moment, stay calm and all that. And then you get out. And so now you've had these two big fights and, and I still have both of those. I spent a week or so ago, I got changed. I was all ready. And so I'm in my house, in my swim trunks and my little change robe and that, and I'm looking out the window for half an hour or more. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just thinking, it, just do it. You, you know, I'm the most lucky guy in this whole kind of, kind of sport because I only have to go 30 meters. Mm-hmm. You know, I could throw a rock from my bed to, to where I swim most days. Yeah. It, it was, I was not happy at all and and I kept thinking there's no reason for this fear the water is the same it's the same spot I've been there literally hundreds of times in worse weather worse temperatures it was night and that's never fun but that's part of the experience and and so anyways I went and did it I fought that battle and I got in the water and then I fought that one and then it's what you just said I got out and I thought yeah, that was actually pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm looking forward to the next one. This yeah. was, I'm glad I did it. I can feel right now how good it is. And I know that it's going to be that good the next time. I, I love how you're I, in there with like a hammer now breaking up the ice. The, uh, well, we just, yeah, the ice got thick here quick. And that's, I'm in an estuary. So it's mostly salt water. And so I was surprised, you know, I went one day and it was just a skiff and I could kind of break things dog paddling. And then the next day I'm up on top, kind of breaking it by hand. And then the next day 
I couldn't. I, I heaved and hoed and I got in and I was a mess. I had bruises and cuts and just because, of course, the ice is sharp. Yeah. And I and I broke maybe a, a foot. And I thought, okay, well, you know, we got to step up our game here. And so I went digging for a sledgehammer and all I could find is the, the one that we use for um, blacksmithing. And so it's four pounds and I really wanted the two pound hammer. Yeah. And so when you see me out there and I'm holding the four pound hammer over my head, that's not a happy shoulder. It's <laughs> I'm working hard. Treading water, holding this ledge over your head at the same time. That's funny. Yeah, but the, yeah, the ice was probably almost 10 centimeters for a bit, you know, eight oh, wow. for sure. And, um, and then just one day, the, the channel that I had cut, a crack started off of it. That's sweet. And once the water got into that crack, by the end of the day, I, I went out and that was my post for the day. I swam around and I took all the big ice flows and I, swam them out and pushed them into the current out front and they disappeared yeah and i'm just looking now and there's about you know a centimeter or two of that kind of slushy ice so tonight's post will be me dog paddling around smashing all that up and because i it's so funny the things that i grew up on a lake in northwestern ontario my family owned a hunting and fishing lodge and so that was my upbringing I've worked on boats all my life. I've worked around water. Um, you know, I was a boat captain on the ocean. Uh, I have a fishing boat here in Norway. I couldn't swim. I was completely pathetic at it and quite afraid of water. Yeah. And so that was the other thing. The summers, I thought, you know, this is ridiculous. The, there's no excuse for it. And so I started to swim and I started at 25 meters and then 50 and then 100 and and at one point, you know, I swam 400 meters and I thought in the last week, I've probably swam more than my entire life put together. Oh, wow. And that was really kind of a, you know, like a sit back and think about it moment. Mm-hmm. And so part of this ice thing is it's exciting. It's super dynamic. It's a great way to like, you know, the water brings about that really intense focus that is so hard to have in our life these days the phones and tvs and people and everything Mm -hmm. but then to layer on top of that i'm in the water and my brain is like razor sharp but my body at the same time has this very simple focused task it's like there's a block of ice in front of you smash it Mm -hmm. and you know centimeter by centimeter we're just making that channel deeper and so some of me wants, wants it to get cold again and, and get that thick layer. <laughs> and easier to be able to stay in the water. I know whenever I have like a little bit of a, a task, you know, like it's, it's always easier to be able to stay in there and it really changes. It makes me realize that like distraction, cognitive distraction, you know, like how powerful the tool that really is. Because I know for me, like when I first started getting into, you know, like ice bathing in the cold about three years ago. I had to really reintroduce the concept of what hypothermia means. Cause I always would resort back to these, you know, indoctrinated commercials on TV about when you fall into a lake in the summertime without your life jacket on, you're going to die from hypothermia because the water's so cold after like 60 seconds, you're done for. And, 
you know so like <laughs> when i'm sitting in there so i'm like my mind's been like like you're you're actually killing yourself like you're gonna not be able to get out of this tank like you have like 60 seconds maybe two minutes max this water's like 10 degrees colder than you know what or 15 degrees colder than what they said that you shouldn't be in you know for more than a minute um and it really made me realize that just like how much like misinformation there is and regards or in regards to how healthy some things can be for your body because we just don't understand them or refusing to really like dive into the investigation behind it because you know like now I'm like how can I sit in a tank that's the water's minus 2.5 2.6 and I prefer it that way because it freezes my skin and I can sit in there long enough it's actually easier to sit in it when it's below minus 2.2 2.3 than it is at minus 1.2 to 1.5 because like you just numb up and then you can't feel anything and then you just you sit in there and and, and it's great but like you know seven to ten minutes you know like I say no problem as in like I can just bear <laughs> it but you know it's one of those things where it just where where do where are we as a human species our population where can we really be where is our, our limits? Because I, I just realized that like, for me personally, through all this, my limitations are so much further past than what this prescribed limitation is for human beings. Yeah. And a lot of it is about, you know, that the limits have grown over time to be more about comfort than actual real limits. And, um, in, in, you know, in some ways that's been part of our, you know, healthy, long living society is we, we don't break our bones as often as we used to. And we don't get cuts that get dirt in them and then get simple infections and all that kind of stuff. And that's nice, but it's come with all these unintended side, you know, consequences. Mm-hmm. And even some of it's very simple, like with the whole cold thing, I think in the old days, our life in general was so cold. Our houses were cold, it, like our bodies were cold 24 hours a day. Yeah. And the um, and so to then add on top of it, getting dunked in freezing cold water, if you, you know, did that 100 or 200 years ago and had to go back to your drafty log cabin in the forest or your stone castle in Europe or whatever, yeah, maybe you did die. Like maybe you couldn't recover from that. Mm-hmm. But because 99% of our life is in this effortlessly comfortable zone, then we need those exposures in order to, you know, make our body remember the way that we were built. Mm-hmm. See, and you know, and this is kind of like my, my concept with like the like the physiology behind it, it, when I get into these conversations with people and feel free to jump in here and tell me I'm full of shit anytime. Um, <laughs> you know, but like from what I understand through all the research I've done, the people I've talked to, like it takes tens of thousands of years for like very small um, biological changes in biological creatures. So if I can sit here and say, okay, well, there's very few things in life that release norepinephrine, you know, 
in your brain. And we know that this is the reason why we feel so happy, you know, being in the cold, because we get this huge norepinephrine influx and we're, there's not really many things that trigger that. So it seems so foreign. And then we really enjoy this, but like dopamine happens pretty consistently through a lot of avenues, but there's norepinephrine is different. You have this conversion from white uh, fat cells to brown fat cells. You have this cold shock protein release with the anti-inflammatory effects. Like you have all of these different like physiological effects that it would take tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years to, to develop these things in all human beings. Why wouldn't I realize that this is something that my body is really used to? And if I'm actually not doing this, it's more of a disservice because I'm not utilizing this genetic tool that's really beneficial to my body. It's actually harder on my body to be outside of that cold than to be inside of that cold. And, and that brings up an interesting point. The, um, the, you know, I've always been kind of a big reader. And years ago, I read a book, Robert Sapolsky, I think is the author, uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Uh, lots of big words, thick book. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, to boil it all down, the whole idea was that you know, we have this kind of evolutionary response to stress, but stress in the old days was, oh my God, a lion is chasing me and I'm going to die. Mm -hmm. And so you really needed to like, that was one that you had to pay attention to and you had to be willing to put every resource you had into dealing with it or you were done. Mm -hmm. So we evolved for that. But lions don't chase us anymore. Now we have, you know, bosses that, you know, chew us out and the stress of the daily commute and bad driving and, you know, the pressure of juggling careers with family and all the commitments for time and all that. But our body only has that one tool to deal with stress. And so it looks at, at your daily commute and says, yeah, I'm not really happy at the daily commute. So I'm going to think that that is actually a lion chasing me. And that's physiologically how I'm going to respond to it. And so this brings on these massive cortisol spikes all day long, or just a ridiculously high level that is sustained. And from that, then we get all these secondary diseases and that. And so a lot of our modern ailments can be tied back to the fact that we're just like drowning in cortisol and not meant for that. Mm -hmm. And so being able to use these different tools, and in this case, especially ice baths, to manage our stress levels, bring down that cortisol level. At the same time, the spike of uh, norodeferin, you know, like is such a big deal and, and physiologically we're better we're more sound and we're more in tune with how we were like how we were built and evolved mm -hmm. but then it manifests as just we're better people i am a happier calmer more resilient more loving person mm -hmm. and more able to you know contribute to everyone around me for the simple fact that you know i do <laughs> I do a lot of other things to take care of myself and try and make myself a better person. But there's also that five to 10 minutes, you know, sometimes 15 minutes on a bad day that I have is just me and a, you know, a puddle of freezing cold water. Yeah. And 
And that's all it takes to flip that ancestral switch inside your body. It's, I think that's kind of the magic of it all is that um, it's how we were made. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I know that we kind of originally talked about this being a, about an hour, but the change of the school or an hour and a half now. Um, <laughs> I unfortunately now are the one that kind of have to start to wrap things up to be able to, to get on with the, uh, with the day. And then you can get on with your uh, hopping into the, uh, into the ocean there and stuff. But um, what I would like to do, if you're open to it, you know, because since you're, uh, you're, um, you're professionally in the uh, biological field, would you ever be open to having a conversation on the podcast? Um, if I facilitated it with uh, Dr. Josephine Warsex, she's based out of Germany. She's a microbiologist who is like heavily invested in the Wim Hof uh, theory. She's worked directly with them from the beginning stages. She's, you know, big into like ice baths and just kind of, you know, you can pick her brain. You guys can talk a little bit of shop and I can be a fly on the wall. <laughs> Uh, that would be awesome. I've watched uh, her podcast with you. Yeah. The, uh, the only caveat I'd have to it is, you know, the, she, she's forgotten more than I will ever know. And so the, it would be interesting because I'm sure I could come up with a handful of, um, you know, I feel this, I think this, and, you know, use her as a resource to explain the, the biology and the mechanics behind it in a way that I just don't understand. Yeah. The, um, but uh, yeah, she's a pretty brilliant woman. Yeah. And I'm really, cause what I, my goal is, and if you listen to that, that podcast you probably heard on there, my goal is to try to figure out a way to be able to get some funding where like there's people like us who are doing these things who are really committed and having, and obviously you have a, a growing community behind you and I have a growing community behind me with, with ice baths and having somebody like her kind of take the reins and, you know, Lisa, because there's, there's, there's not a lot of great information. Like we just, there's a lot of things that we just don't know. Um, and, you know, I know a person like her would love to be able to, to figure them out. And I would love to be a, a part of that. So um, it's something that's always on my mind to figure out a way to be, how to be able to do that. And I find that these are the reasons why people like you and people like her have come into my life, because these are all the puzzle pieces slowly starting to kind of come together. So um, yeah, if you'd be open to that, if you had some, I would, I would be more than happy to reach out to her and see if we could do a, a zoom chat between all of us and have a great conversation. Yeah. sounds like fun. Good. Well, I hope that you have a, a wonderful evening. Thanks again for taking some time out of your day to be able to come on the podcast. I, I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for, uh, for having me and, <laughs> and enjoy your morning. Yeah. Throw it your, uh, your Instagram house. I know that you have a, a, a growing community. It seems like all the time with with people uh, posting on your Instagram, tagging you in and like you uh, um, saying that love out to people on Instagram too. So uh, throw your handles out there and, and let us hear them. Okay. Uh, so I am COVID ice bath, all one word uh, on Instagram. And the, um, I, uh, like I said, I do a dip every day of different places, different styles and that I always post it. And really, I guess my, my theme, my vibe or whatever there is, I try to use that time and opportunity to think about uh, myself and my life, but also the, the greater kind of community and what we can all do to just be better people. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs>
Awesome. Well, thanks, Jason. Have a wonderful night and get a good sleep. Have a great weekend. Okay. You too. Bye.